Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. Hi, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with a different creative Mississippian. And uh, today we have a very special guest. Uh, of course, it's Governor's Arts Awards time. It's, it's the early part of the year, so we're celebrating the Governor's Arts Awards recipients, having them on throughout January and February. And joining us today is our Lifetime Achievement recipient for this year, Mr. Ed McGowan. Ed, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So, of course, you are one of our seven Governor's Arts Awards recipients this year. Uh, we're having the ceremony February 2nd in, in Jackson. But first of all, congratulations on this, on this honor. Thank you very much. It's a real honor. I'm, I'm very flattered and very, very pleased. Yeah, we're, we're, we're real excited to have you uh, for the ceremony, as well as some of the other folks that you've worked with over the years, like uh, Betsy Bradley and Key Francis and a lot of other Mississippians who are in the visual arts field are especially represented this year. Well, let's let's get started. You know, you have such a, a massive body of work and a, a long career. Obviously, we can't hit all of the, you know, we can only kind of briefly glance at, at, at some parts of it. But um Maybe you could start off by, you know, you're a native of Hattiesburg and people in Mississippi want to know kind of that backstory of uh, where you were born and where you grew up and a, a little bit about your uh, early years in Hattiesburg. Okay, sure. You can, you can um, break in whenever, if it's not clear. I was born in Hattiesburg. Uh, my mother and father met in New Orleans during the Depression my father was from Alabama. My mother was from Hattiesburg. And, uh, and immediately after I was born, um, I was taken to Alabama with my father and mother. And uh, I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. And um, that was in a small village, Greenville, Alabama. A lot of relatives, you know, a lot of a lot of, um, of some of the same cultural things that you have in Mississippi, of course. And, uh, and it, at about 10 years old, I moved to Mississippi. That, that was a much bigger, much bigger um, town than Hattiesburg was than, than where I had been. But from time to time, I would go back with my mother from Alabama to Mississippi to visit the grandparents. And Hattiesburg was a major staging base for World War II. Camp Shelby rotated about 100,000 troops through there regularly. And so I was exposed to a lot of military. That was very interesting. And of course, World War II was going on. And, um, and it, it was a very exciting, you know, for me, I was not so concerned about the politics of the war, but I was very excited about the soldiers and all the, you know, the, the tanks and things that would be brought by there. So that was interesting. And then eventually um, I got to go to 
I, I went to, ended up in high school there, of course. And um, all this while, my grandfather, named Albert Ratliff, was a, um, an inventor and, and was a, um, a sign painter or an, an artist. And, and he built um, little fairy tale sort of environments for places like drugstores and things like that. So that you would go to look in the window of the drugstore and there would be these mechanical little, little uh, fairy tales that were being represented there. So that I attribute to, to for me, that was the, the license to be an artist. I, mean, I watched my grandfather when I was a young boy, and uh, and I was fascinated. I mean, it was when he would when he would letter a, a store window or something. It was almost like the letters would would run out of his fingers like water. It was just just wonderful. So that that was um, you know that was exciting, but but it wasn't much of a one. It wasn't encouraged. I was not encouraged to to do, you know, to do artistic work or sign painting or anything like that. And I, um, I was not very, I was not a very good student. You know, my, I daydreamed a lot. And so as a, as a student, I was, I was daydreaming a lot. And there was no art in the, in the school, in the system. They didn't have art classes as such at that time. So, um, when I finished high school, my father had decided that a good career for me would be the military. And so I was told that if, if I could get myself prepared, they were able to arrange an appointment to Annapolis to go to the Naval War College. And I went away to military school my freshman year of college with a very good friend, Carlton Temple, Carlton, when we were roommates. And once I was in military school, it was obvious that that was not a career for me. I was not a very good student. I was not a, at all a good cadet. Even though I tried desperately to do, the, do it right, I just was, had two left feet, as I say. So um, Annapolis was out of the question. And I went back and and enrolled myself in Mississippi Southern. And I had had a year of engineering in prep for, for Annapolis. So I started in engineering at Mississippi Southern, but uh, very quickly discovered the art department. And uh, that was a godsend. I dropped out of ROTC. I got deeply involved in the art department with. Vernon Merrifield, who was who was my mentor, he was a professor there that was extraordinary. He taught a lot of people and and uh, and was was very good at at um, you know encouraging young young artists. And at the time, the the only art I think at the time the only art museum specifically was in Laurel, Mississippi. There, there were no other museums. There were historical museums and anthropology and so forth, but Laurel had the museum. 
And so there was not a great deal of uh, stimulation except periodicals. I, my mother, you know, had subscriptions to magazines. And, and, you know, so I would look through those and find things that I thought were interesting. And when I got into the art department, a man named Walter Locke was the chairman who was very supportive, very helpful. And uh, Charles Ambrose was, uh, was the sort of foundations teacher, taught drawing and life drawing and that sort of stuff. And um, so that, that worked out very well for me. I, was, I had found something that I was good at, I and mean, I could do that. And I studied enough to get by with the rest of the courses. You know, I was a mediocre student, but I could, I could manage the literature courses and, the, you know, algebra courses and so forth. I could manage them. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Today, our guest is Ed McGowan. He is the Lifetime Achievement recipient for this year's Governor's Arts Awards. So um, I graduated and... Um, Vernon Merrifield had encouraged me to look at the University of Alabama. They had a wonderful graduate program. And um, there was a man named Dr. Ted Klitsky, who was the chairman of the program at the University of Alabama. And he had, um, he had brought down several New York abstract expressionist. Um, this is sort of, um, that at the moment, that was, that was the painting area of interest that was being in, investigated most and most, it was most serious. So I was, the, the, those of us that were at the university at that time were exposed to some people that had, had firsthand knowledge of, um, of the New York art scene and they were pals with all of the, the major artists, the uh, Jackson Pollocks and Franz Klein and, and Rothko and that, that whole group. And so again, psychologically interacting with, with the faculty at the, Alabama, at the University of Alabama who were very, involved and familiar with some of the major artists in New York, it's, you know, it made you think, well, I can do that. <laughs> that's not, that's not impossible. I mean, it, you know, it was easy to talk and easy to, you know, to have an insight into what was going on. And Dr. Klitsky was very, very good at, at directing us towards towards um, an intellectual pursuit in, in the work, not, not only the skills and not only the, you know, learning the, the various techniques, but, but a more intellectual analysis of what was being done and, um, and how we would fit into it if possible. So that, that was, um, that sort of covers, you know, from birth till, till university. And um, in the meantime, I, I came back and, and, and was a, I was a substitute teacher for a year, about almost a year at Mississippi Southern. Before I finished my master's degree, I was at Mississippi Southern 
when Vernon Merrifield went back to Tuscaloosa to finish his degree, I took over his job and, and worked there until something else appeared, and, and, uh, and I took that. Going back so, just a second, did you, uh, in terms of like your grandfather being a creative person, did you, did he, did you ever kind of work with him or did he ever show you anything in terms of like, since you showed that interest, what, or was it just more observation with him? It was just observation. I was not, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't old enough really to do anything that was, that was, uh, commercially acceptable. And, uh, but I love, I just love to watch what he did. It was, it, again, I say it was like magic. He had, you know, it was like his fingers were filled with these beautiful letters and so forth. And he just put his hands out and they would appear on, on whatever he was working on. So in, in your bio materials, it talks about you starting as a painter. And I was curious about when you kind of started branching out. Was that while you were uh, still a student or was that after kind of you went into kind of your professional phase of your work? Well, it was when we, when, when we were students uh, was the beginning. You know, that was that was sort of the the this. And, and we had, you know, people that were that were prompting us and helping us and tutoring us along. That's that was, I guess, was the beginning. But I mean, were you exclusively a painter, like kind of in your initial years, or were you always kind of working in multiple types of uh, formats? Well, I um, I set out to be a painter. First, I got a degree in in applied art, you know, in a commercial art, and I was going to be in advertising or, you know, that sort of a uh, that area. But then, um, but Vernon encouraged me to go to to get you know, a graduate degree. And that's where I discovered painting. I hadn't really taken that very seriously. And, uh, but at the University of Alabama, I discovered painting, had great faculty, and we were, you know, we were all around Bill Christenberry, who's has passed away not too long ago, but Bill was, um, was at the university at the same time. And, and, uh, he was, you know, highly regarded, very, very successful artist. And um, about that time, when I was teaching at Mississippi Southern, my mother was working with a man who was very involved in politics in Mississippi and in the South. And he was very close to Congressman William Colmer, who represented the 5th District of Mississippi in Washington and was one of the major, um, he was one of the most powerful men in Washington at the time because he was the chairman of the Rules Committee and nobody could get any legislation on the floor unless they went through his committee. And uh, he had been there for, I think, almost 30 years. And he offered me a job. Or they, they my mother helped arrange for me to get a patronage job through Congressman Calmer. So I got to move to Washington and, uh, and that was the metropolis for me. You know, I, I think Birmingham was the biggest, no, New Orleans was probably the biggest city I've ever been in. So in Washington, um, I started my exhibiting career and was very, very lucky 
had some good opportunities in the very beginning. And uh, I worked for I worked for the congressman for almost two years, and it, and it was a very easy job. I didn't have much to do. It's I think it's a little bit telling that I didn't have much to do because I'm sure if I'd been worth anything, he would have used me a lot more. But at the time, if the, if the Congress was not in session, I didn't have to go. I didn't have to be in at the uh, at the Capitol. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Arts Commission, and today we're talking with Ed McGowan. He is the 2023 Lifetime Achievement Award recipient for the Governor's Arts Awards, and he'll be receiving that award at the two Mississippi museums on February 2nd. Uh, so, Ed, we were talking when we left before the break. You were, you had, you know, at that point in your career, you moved moved to D.C. Looking back at kind of the the, the hist- your history in that. It seems like um, everybody thinks about New York, right, as, as the capital of the arts and, and, and the art scene, which it is. But it seemed like you were you were getting to D.C. at a very good time in terms of there was a lot of activity and a lot of young artists. And and just tell us a little bit about that environment of the 60s and 70s visual arts around uh, D.C., Virginia area. Well, it was, it was very dynamic. What was going on in, in, uh, in D.C.? Um, was in many ways uh, because of the National Endowment for the Arts that had been established. So everybody in the arts had to come to DC to try to get money. <laughs> and, and so it was an opportunity for the artists that were there to be seen by, by very serious people and very, you know, very helpful and curious people. The National Endowment was, um, was, a, was a major influence in bringing the art scene in Washington to the surface, is my opinion. The Color Field School of Painting at that time was in, in ascension. It was very, it was becoming very important. And there were half a dozen or more of the Color Field School painters there in Washington and Baltimore that, um, that were around. And, and um, and so they attracted though that group attracted a lot of a lot of attention and so the others of us myself and Christenberry and Rockney Krebs and and others that were that were there um, were able to benefit from that. 
So what led from your transformation from you were kind of on the side as you were working for the congressman, you were kind of pursuing your art on the side. And and That's how, right. how did that how did that, uh, you know, how did you go from, you know, the, the the assistant there to kind of developing your own career in, in that area as an artist? Well, um, when I let, when I when I stopped working at Congress, um, I had I had um, put down some roots in Washington. I had to go. I had to go finish my master's degree because I, I left in the middle of that. So I went back for a few months, and and I had at this point I had a wife and two daughters, uh, Leah and Jill McGowan, and uh, and so. I went back and finished the degree and then immediately went back to Washington, D.C. and picked up where I had left off there. And um, I got a job teaching at the uh, at the Corcoran Gallery of Arts Museum School. We, we taught the, the George Washington University students. And so that that provided some some financial support. And I would, I was freelancing, doing other things, you know, just scrapping by whatever, you know, whatever was, was possible. I started an art school and went broke um, in about, in about six months. So um, I got that out of my system and it was just, you know, one good fortune after the other. I was very, very lucky in many, many ways. And it seems like there were, exhibition opportunities in DC as well in terms of just looking at your bio you had a lot of seems like prominent exhibits or you were able to kind of get your work out there in a pretty you know it didn't take decades or whatever to to kind of cross that barrier I was I was, I was lucky I'll say I, when I first when I first came back to Washington um, after finishing my degree um, I went to the Corcoran Museum, which at that time was was the was one of the premier spots for artists in, in D.C. to show their work besides commercial galleries. Uh, and um, I walked in and got an appointment with the director, Goodman Vigtel. And I said, how about doing an exhibition of my work? <laughs> he, he said, well, let me see what you have. And I had been very, very prolific. And so I invited him over to his, where I had a, a studio in Alexandria, Virginia. And I had rolls of paintings, many rolls of paintings, one after the other. So I had my first one, ex, one person exhibition in Washington when I was very young at, at the, you know, at a very prominent museum. And, uh, and that established my sort of established my career in, in DC. All luck. <laughs> well, it sounds like there was a little bit of hard work there, but definitely well, being in the right place at the right time helps, I guess. Yeah, it does. That's, it was very nice that part. It, what, um, so you eventually you eventually relocate to to the New York area. When at what point in your career did you decide? Well, okay, now it's time to make that. <laughs> Make that leap. Well, I I had a um, um, in my personal life, uh, my wife and I divorced. She was a woman from 
Hattiesburg also. We were childhood sweethearts. And uh, her, her name was Patsy Sheffield. And we divorced and I was um, single, basically living in a garage. And um, I was invited to go to Paris for a year and with a, a studio. I was, I'd be given a studio by an art dealer there named Dorothy Aspire. They had, the, they had an international sort of dormitory for artists or studio space for artists. And she was in charge of, of who got to go. And um, so she, she arranged for me to come and I spent a year in Paris. And after a year in Paris, which was a lot, awful lot of fun, after a year in Paris, um, Washington wasn't so exciting anymore. I, I had, I'd had a number of exhibitions in Washington and in some respects, I'd sort of, sort of taken advantage of most of the opportunities out, you know, when I was young. And, um, so I just decided that maybe it was time to go to New York because Paris had spoiled me a bit and um, moved up to New York and married my wife, Claudia DeMonte, who was, who was teaching at the University of Maryland from New York. She was a New Yorker. And we made a home there. And, and again, we were very lucky. We, we found a, a, a wonderful studio space in Soho, which was the art, sort of the art neighborhood. And uh, we were able to get a huge space for very little money. In fact, um, I think a friend of mine paid more for his car that year than I paid for, for our home. So again, it was, it was, it was very, very good timing. Uh, to be in Soho. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Today, our guest is Ed McGowan. He is the Lifetime Achievement recipient for this year's Governor's Arts Awards. And that, um, that eventually led to an opportunity teaching at the State University of New York, which provided some sort of stability to, to our life. And Claudia was commuting back and forth to the University of Maryland. and. Um, we were associated with various galleries. It's, it's interesting to get the Lifetime Achievement Award. It, it certainly means one thing, it means you're old. And so my, all of the art dealers that I was working with in, in those years are, are dead. You know, they were all older and more established than I was when, when I moved there. So they've all passed away. And, um, and the, you know, the art scene has changed and gone through many, many different manners of working. And, and I'm still there. I, I still have a, have a studio there where we started out on Grand Street about 46 years ago. A little bit different neighborhood, though, I would imagine, since, oh, since that, yeah. Yeah, a little bit because, of change. The neighborhood it used to be artists where you could park on the street and you had to, you had to, it was, it was hard to find a, a grocery store. There were no grocery stores or anything down there. And that's the biggest shopping center in Manhattan. So, 
So it's uh, it's 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 very 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 different, and um, and and for that reason, uh, my wife Claudia and I have have um, a home in in Miami Beach, where we live part of the year with studios, and uh, and so we commute back and forth. And in the middle of all that, I um, had an idea about how I thought that art would evolve in my future for all the artists, not, not only for me. And that art, I saw a model for art that was, that was sort of a, a three-dimensional model, if you will, like a, a sphere, you know, like a, a balloon that just got bigger and bigger and bigger as different artists made contributions to, to the sum of art, to the history of art. And, and the tradition had been, up until that time, a very linear tradition. So if, if a balloon was a, um, a spherical round model, then uh, a chain link would be the, um, the model for a linear development of art history where one idea one school one you know one uh, period begets another period that builds on that and and so forth so in in order to to make the in order to make a a statement about this idea that i had and in order to demonstrate it in a way I, I went to court in Washington, this is before Paris. I went to court in Washington and a, a lawyer friend of ours, very, very wonderful man, Ira Lowe, helped me change my name legally 12 times. So every six weeks, I would change my name legally. And I would change from Alva Faust was was one of my first names and then Irby Roy is another Isaac Anderson and so on 12 different names and I set out to make a a body of work for each of these 12 names to sort of show a, a, a molecular development that that was not one idea based on the other, the, the one that preceded it necessarily. And so the, the name change project took about 18 months to, to get it all done. And I've actually been working with those 12, I'd say 12 artists, I've been working with those 12 personas since 1969, I believe, 1969. And and I and I find that a very a very useful model for me to that's a good way for me to work. So I um, and 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 the artist or each artist is is conceptually unique. Not it's not a matter of changing from watercolor to all oil paint or you know from clay sculpture to ceramics or anything. It has nothing to do with technique so much. It was more about the ideas. And so some of the artists are doing reasonably well of the 12. And uh, I think one of them may be dead. 
he hadn't done anything in 45 years. What's with this but, guy? This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and today we're talking with Ed McGowan. He's the Lifetime Achievement Recipient for the Governor's Arts Awards for 2023, and he'll be receiving that award February 2nd at the two Mississippi museums as part of that ceremony. So, Ed, one thing I wanted to, and we, we can talk a little, maybe if we have time, a little more about the name change, your name change work, but uh, before we, we get away, I wanted to hear about, uh, I'd seen the... Um, press release that came out a few years back when you and your wife made a significant donation to the Mississippi Museum of Art of work by self-taught and folk artists from the South that, that, that y'all had collected over the years. So I, I'm, I'm, as someone who's worked in the folk arts, I'm just curious to hear about that part of your interest and, and if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. It, that was, um, that, that, the beginning of that was, was uh, the Professor Mel Price at Tuscaloosa took a group of us over to see this, um, this man who had built some structures um, in, in Alabama. Um, and they were, they were actually sculptures that were made out of, out of uh, junk and whatever you could pick up, but multi-story things big things and um and and mel explained to us how his his work was art in 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 a way that made a lot of sense to us and um so from that beginning i i was always interested in seeing things that were made by untrained people um if you know how children draw and paint well because they don't know they can do anything wrong <laughs> so they they they're very you know very free and make very beautiful things well folk artists in a way are like that and um so i i was picking up an occasional painting or an occasional object that was made many of them were made for use not not necessarily just to look at people that would, would make a chair out of out of material and it would look like when you looked at it, it was it was more than a chair, it was a sculpture, but in the the chair, it was a, a sculpture with a chair idea behind it. So over the years, um, my wife Claudia and I, we both we both were fascinated by that and we we we, we traveled a great deal. We we've been to over a hundred countries and we're always looking for for things that fit those parameters that we sort of set up for what we think is interesting about folk art. And um, 
at one point we took uh, we took a road trip all through the south and and drove thousands of miles looking for and 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 looking up artists that were already known and and looking for other artists that were unknown and so we we put together a pretty nice collection and in almost all of the work were all of almost all of the work were, were from made by people that we met so we had a you know we had a, a little bit of a contact and relationship with these people and their work and uh, and we decided to give it to the mississippi museum at some point because we had more than we could you you know we had too much and and we thought that people would understand it better in in mississippi because so much of it was from mississippi and alabama and other parts of the deep south but folk arts made everywhere uh, and and um, we just particularly focused on the deep south because i grew up there and and it, it seems to be there's an abundance of folk art in the south when you look around so that was the um and 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 that informed our work for both of us i mean i think that one of my artists that uh, is is definitely his work is very much informed by folk art and his name is thornton dossett and dossett's work um, is about um, race and as i knew it growing up in the deep south during segregation and it was about uh, how the two white and black societies mixed together and how sometimes the mixing was uh, was very unfortunate and and very bad it was you know things people were getting killed and and all of the horrors of 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 that period that period that was um that was so dramatic and coming to a head and when when i was just before i left but also particularly about what i'm most interested in is about when the two when the two cultures mix the good that comes from it uh, and you don't have to go to a hundred countries to see what's um, how the you know how the different cultures can can come together and and make make um, an incredible contributions. When you think about it, the 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 art, um, uh, the, for instance, music. I mean, have have music has been influenced enormously by the african-american community and the african you know it, it was it was brought over from africa to to the u.s during slavery and that matured into rhythm and blues and that became a leg that rock and roll stands on and uh and so those sort of those and you anywhere you look in the south you see how the two the two different cultures come together, certainly with food, architecture, dance, art, um, 
and just about anything that that um, that humans make is a blend in some ways of all the people in the area. So um, the folk art thing was a great period in our, you know, our collecting. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Today, our guest is Ed McGowan. He is the Lifetime Achievement recipient for this year's Governor's Arts Awards. Did you, were you able to, I, I was just curious about, you kind of have a who's who of, of Mississippi folk artists, you know, that were represented in this, in this donation. Just curious if any of them stick out in your mind in terms of ones that you met or got to interact with. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that um, the ones that come to mind right, right, right now are, are um, names that, that I can't bring up. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, there. Well, well, like Son Thomas, Mose Tolliver, Luster thank Willis, you. Mary thank Smith, T. Smith. These are all ones that I did. Thank, I'm thank you very much. That's yeah. a big help. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, uh, Mose Tolliver's from Alabama. And, okay. And, but it's all the same region. I mean, you know, it's, the lines are artificial when it comes to art. So um, all of the, you know, all of the artists that are in our collection are, are um, you know, are from the same region. And um, Mary Smith was one of the most interesting of, of all the artists we collected uh, because she had, um, she had had a stroke, I believe. Yeah, I think it was a stroke. And she was not able to speak um, clearly. And so she expressed herself through her art. And, and when we went to, to see her art, it, was, um, it, was, it, it adorned everything in her yard. She had it on the fences, on the plants, on the shrubbery, everywhere that it was, it was all, laid out in and she she had become a personality in that area some people thought she was crazy some people thought she was a genius and um, she was one of the most most interesting people creating down there at that time most Tolliver too most Tolliver was was um, as you know he was he was lame he had had an accident construction accident so uh, he was out of the out of that working working part of his life, and I guess he was on disability, and so he he had a lot of time, and he put it to use making paintings. I remember somebody came down, I forget where it was from, when folk art started becoming popular, you could you, you could get in a caravan of cars driving up to most Oliver's place or Mary Smith's place or to to you know to buy the folk art, and we got there one day went by the CMOs one day because we've been many times and um, somebody came in and, and bought everything he had in, in his, in his home, all of, bought all of his work and it gave him a hot check. So, so um, you know, I couldn't imagine how anybody could be that cruel to such a, such a wonderful artist and a wonderful person, but he did. And, um, uh, I don't think I don't think Mose ever got any of it back. He. It's terrible. Yeah. Well, 
Ed, we, we, the clock on the wall says it's time for us to wrap up. But for folks who want to learn more about your work and, and and your story, where where should we send them? Kind of online wise. Well, I have a um, I have a, a web page. Um, Google is a good source. The um, some of the you know some of the uh, a number of a lot of institutions have my work. The Mississippi Museum is has got an enormous amount of my work in their, in their collection. Um, some work in, in Laurel, some work in uh, um, the Smithsonian, some work at the, you know, the Whitney Museums. The most, some of those are not on view. They take them out every now and then. But um, I think that, um, and the, the work is in a lot of periodicals and a lot of uh, uh, a lot of books that are available. So if if um, if you look online, you you'll find a a web page and uh, and um, I'll try to keep it up to date. So we're producing a lot of art today. You know, still working very hard. Great. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.